such a hard line between is Deion Sanders an egomaniac making this about him or is he trying to coach these kids well and build a good football program? There's so many parallels. Tension between is this the Carl show versus this this University of Houston track team was always there. I think that we should have real championship rings and trophies for super rich people. And there can be different levels based on what they contribute to the tax pool. The contribution trophy. Who contributed the most to society? Welcome back to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, every week I ask you how you are, and we've had reviewers say they just wait for you to actually answer the question and reply. So I'm going to ask by setting that up, how are you, my man? Good. <laughs> I had to. Um, I do reply. We got that. We got that feedback a year ago, and I started. I started letting you know that I'm doing well. Some days I'm not doing well. Most days I'm in between. Um, but yeah, no. Today I'm doing. I'm doing well. I am sitting here in my little recording studio, carved out in my garage in Asheville, and uh, the weather has cooled off. It feels like fall, especially in the morning, and that's good. Um, yeah, so that's what's new. That's what's new with me. Fall, fall in Asheville, keeping my head above water with the kids, the book, everything else that we do. Um, excited to have this conversation today because, um, we did zero preparation for it. We are literally just going to hit record on something that I had called Steve about earlier and said, man, like we got to talk about Dion. Steve's like, wait, let's just hit record and talk about Dion. You know, these are my favorite kind of conversations. Way back when we got started, you know, working together, I would tell Brad, you know, you just gotta, you just gotta let it rip and write a, write a newsletter, a blog post and don't even think about it. Just, just rant. And Brad would be like, well, I can't do that. I've got to do this. And, you know, I, I give him credit. Brad maybe doesn't have the grammatical errors that I do in my just passionate rants, but Brad has has learned how to rant over the years. So I feel I feel like we've we've balanced each other out a little bit. You bring a little bit uh more structure and some attention uh for me and I bring a little bit more ranting to you. So today we're going to we're going to go towards ranting. And I want to set this conversation up. So we're going to talk about Deion Sanders and what he's done at the University of Colorado, but not just Dion. We're going to talk about coaching, leadership, motivation, all of those things that tie together. But to set the stage, if you're not a football fan, you're still gonna you're still gonna take away a lot from this conversation because it's it's kind of an interesting and remarkable turnaround. So Dion Sanders, probably during our generation, Brad, I mean, he was around while we were kids. Um He was the dude, like one of the best football players who was Hall of Fame cornerback, who also played wide receiver occasional times, which is just unheard of. Also played at the same time in Major League Baseball. (laughs) Like he played baseball and football at the highest level at the same time. He was known for 
kind of trash talking. He had the celebrations like everybody in elementary school did the like Deion Sanders. I don't I don't even know what it's like the high stepping to the end zone. Like that was the thing you did, at least in my elementary school in, in Texas. So he had this pizzazz, this this charisma around him. And as a player, and then recently, you know, or over the last couple of years, took that to coaching first at Jackson State, where he had a lot of success. And then this year went to Colorado and he took over a Colorado team that was one in 11 last year. So not good. Basically revamped the whole team, primarily through the transfer portal. Um, but, you know, Got rid of a bunch of people, told them to go away, essentially brought in a bunch of new talent, and they went 3-0 and to start, initially beating last year's you know, uh, national championship runner-up, essentially, TCU, and a big upset. And then their fourth game, which is after we're recording here, they got their butts kicked by Oregon, just a beatdown. So that sets the stage. Remarkable turnaround. Charisma coach has some crazy press conferences, films, you know, team meetings and stuff. It's like a reality show on on football. And we're going to kind of dissect that and uh and and see where we we end up here. The only additions I'd make to that context, Steve, is he won two Super Bowls and made a World Series appearance, and he's the only athlete to ever both have a Super Bowl and World Series appearance. So other athletes were multi-sport. Bo Jackson comes to mind, but none did it at the level that Dion did, or at least contributed to teams that did it at the level that Dion did. So in addition to having big talk, he also had big game. Uh, He was truly a phenomenal football player and a very solid baseball player. So he backed up his talk. One addition there, because we have to do it. He also ran track at Florida State. And, you know, the stories go that he played baseball and football and largely didn't practice. And um, I think it was at the conference meet one year, went from a baseball game to the track and ran on the four by one. And he was a legit sprinter. I I forget off the top of my head, but I think his 100 meter best was something like 10.28 and 220.7, which for not practicing is is near world-class speed, especially in the 80s. So there you go. Yeah, Track so he's, as well. He's really good. So I, what I'd like to say before we make all sorts of errors is that I think that Dion, and I don't know him personally, but I think Dion Sanders strikes me as being a good dude with a good heart, and I would probably want to be coached by him. Like I think it would be fun, and I think that he would push, and I think that he would believe in his team. Um. So that's my bias going into this. However, I also think it would be a handful to be coached by Deion Sanders. It seems like Deion Sanders exists on a similar plane to someone like a Donald Trump or Elon Musk, where they understand that in today's world, there is so much value in commanding attention. And he wants to command a lot of attention. And I think a big part of the reason that he was able to hit up that transfer portal to bring in a lot of good talent is just that. He commanded attention. And some of it was with his name. Some of it was with his record at Jackson State, doing just a phenomenal job with a much smaller school. Um, So I think that he sees the flash in the press conferences as a way to have a very loud loudspeaker in the attention economy and draw attention to his program. 
I think there's another element of it, which is that he probably sees it as a way to instill fire and belief in his team, in his coaching staff, in his players. I want to unpack something that he said at a press conference after Oregon um, really just buried Colorado. And I'm paraphrasing, but Dion said, you better get me now because this is the worst I'm going to be. So you better get me now because this is the worst I'm going to be. And how I interpreted that is give me some time to build this program. If I was on that team, I don't think I would have liked hearing that because essentially what it was saying or how I interpreted it, maybe I'm wrong, is like, this is about me, the coach, not this team. And I didn't interpret it as this team is the worst it's going to be all year. So you better get us now. We're going to keep getting better. I interpreted it as I just got here, you know, don't slam the door too fast because I need some more time to build this program. And I think that there is a fine line between the pizzazz and the inspiration and then making it more about you, the coach, than the athletes. And I think that that is a line that Dion's going to have to tread, knowing that it kind of has to be about him, the coach, too, to be able to recruit the players that he's recruiting. Um, so it's a really tricky situation for him, and I think it's a tricky situation for the athletes on that team right now. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because this is like leadership 101 dilemma, right? Because you, you, when you look at sports, when you look at any endeavor, you need talent. Like talent is king. So your number one goal is how do I get more talent? Well, in today's world, especially when you're recruiting high school or 18 to 22 year olds, like flash gets you in the door, right? You need, you need to sell something and like that pizzazz, that appearance, that that flash, like is what what does a lot of it. I mean, it's in every football, every college football program does this. If you look at the crazy, you know, things they all have, the whatever, the pools and the slides and the the football, you know, training facilities and just the crazy stuff they have, the barber shops that are in the locker room. Um, why do they do that? Flash, man. Get your interested recruits interested in you. But at the same time, like there's this tension between looking to the future and saying, I'm building this, and the people you have here in the room right now. Because if you say, Oh, the future in the future, we're gonna be better, we're gonna have this, we're gonna have this. What that signals is those guys sitting in that room right now are like, wait, well, wait a minute, are we are we trying to win now like am i not good enough like do you not believe we have the ability to do it um and that's our attention and then i think the other part that you got out there that is really important is often when you see we'll call it world-class or elite uh former athletes take on coaching roles often it doesn't go very well and one of the reasons, I think, is because of that dichotomy that you kind of illustrated there, which is like the tension gets shifted to the coach because he's world class, like he's known, he's the star. And the athletes kind of become, you know, second niche, like a level down from that, that coach. And it can be, that can create a lot of tension in a locker room or a lot of tension in a program. 
And I think that's that's one of the tricky things to to really figure out and balance. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that. And I think it's not just Dion, right? So I am a Michigan man through and through. Undergrad, grad school, now it's a part of my career. Go blue. And Jim Harbaugh is an understated Deion Sanders. Like he might not have the flash, but like it is Jim Harbaugh's program. I mean, when Jim Harbaugh took over as the coach, Steve, everyone in the stadium, including the adults, not just the student section, all like wore khakis in a sweater to the game because Jim Harbaugh, like that's his outfit is especially the khakis. So it was very much about Jim Harbaugh. And I'll tell you what, Jim Harbaugh took over the Michigan football program and it was struggling. And now the Michigan football program is right back where I think it belongs, which is as a perennial BCS team and championship contender. And no doubt, those first couple teams, it wasn't about the team. It was about Jim Harbaugh. And it was about, I can make you an NFL quarterback. I can instill discipline in you. I I can build a team that's going to win a championship. Um, So I think that People from the sidelines that like the main critique of Dion, which was my initial critique, but like with these levels of nuance is like, he's making it about him. It should be about the kids when it's a fine line that he has to tread. And I'll say the week before in terms of making it about the kids, I don't know all the athletes names because I'm not that dialed into college football, but essentially a player on Colorado state took a really big hit against someone on Colorado, Deion Sanders' team, when the athlete was going out of bounds. And it was flagged for a personal fall. Whether or not it was um, like truly a cheap shot versus just part of the game, it took, for a former football player, I watched the replay, kind of tough to tell. You know, I don't think people realize that these are the best athletes in the world and they're going 100 miles an hour and it's hard to just put the brakes on. But it was a questionable hit. And the players got in each other's faces, so on and so forth. And it came out later on that the player in Colorado State that did the questionable hit started getting death threats. And Dion stepped up and he took that pizzazz and Dion Sanders' charisma and gave a phenomenal interview in which he essentially said, like, these are kids. And that kid on Colorado State is a young man doing the best he can, playing a violent sport as hard as he can. And people make mistakes and mistakes are a part of the game and he means no harm. And, you know, the death threats are such nonsense. And if any of that's coming from Colorado football fans, that needs to stop. And to me, that makes me respect Dion in kind of the ego because he's still using the Dion Sanders ego. If it's any other coach giving that speech, you kind of shake your head. But when it's Dion, you know, it's, it's the pizzazz. He's got the sunglasses on, the big diamond chain. You listen and you... The, the response is like, all right, you know, Dion's putting this situation in its place. Um, so I do think like he also cares about the kids. Um, I think it's just, again, like it's part of the reason that I'm, I'm kind of mumbling through all this is it's such a hard line between is Dion Sanders an egomaniac making this about him or is he trying to coach these kids well and build a good football program? Yeah. And, you know, I think maybe to give some context, so let's take it out of the uh, Deion Sanders world into the world that I know, track and field, is, uh, you know, when we briefly spoke you know, offline, listeners, we made it 14 minutes and 55 seconds. So that's, you know, Gary, this, this is a very apt comparison and something that I can actually talk about with substance is way back in, gosh, 2013, 2014, um, 
when I was at the University of Houston coaching track and field as part of the staff, we had a world-class staff. Leroy Burrell, former world record holder in the 100, was the head coach. And all of a sudden, this guy named Carl Lewis moves back to Houston and is going to join the staff. And I remember one of the early meetings, I, I met Carl once or twice before, but didn't know him. I remember one of the early meetings, Carl sitting down and being like, all right, we're going to win a national championship. And you got to understand at Houston, we were a good program. We always won a conference championship, maybe would finish, you know, 20th in the nation, something like that. But we were a non-Power 5 school. So at that point, we were in like either Conference USA or the, I think the American Athletic Conference at that point. And um, no one outside of the Power 5 was really challenging for a, a national championship. But Carl just comes in and says it. And similar to Deion Sanders, like Carl has this persona around him. Like he was voted the best athlete of the 20th century. <laughs> um, like he has this persona around him. And he would come in and say, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And he'd have some crazy ideas that would not work. Or that you'd have to pull, you know, Leroy would have to pull him back on. But then he'd have this kind of belief or these ideas that would work. And I think watching Deion Sanders from afar, there's, there's again, some parallels. For instance, Carl early on said, we have to win the relays. We have to have good relays. Why? Because in track and field, what do people watch the most? The relays, right? He was like, at that time, our 4 by one was pretty good. He said, we needed to be national championships. Our 4 by 4 which was not that good, he said, we need to have a 4 by 4 at the national championships and be in the hunt, hunt to win. Why? Because he knew that would get the most attention. And then he also said, we need to go, we need to go win pin relays. We need to win Drake relays. We need to win Texas relays. Why? Because not many people pay attention to track, but those were the relay meets that were going to be on TV, right? One year, we sent literally a four by one to pin relays and a B team four by one to Drake relays because they were at the same, same time and won both. Um, which I don't think had ever been done. Why did we do that? Because Carl knew he needed to get flash and attention. He also had a reality kind of TV or reality series on flow track, which is like the track and field kind of online broadcaster. And, and what I'll say is in experiencing all of that is that tension between, is this the Carl show versus this, this university of Houston track team was always there. And sometimes it would edge towards, oh man, this is the Carl show. And like, you could see a little bit of discontent, you know, rising on the team. But most of the time, Carl was really good at edging that back towards put the athletes focus when it's their time. Make sure the athletes know that like, we're building this, this for them. Um, but the other thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up here, Brad, but it, there's so many parallels. I remember early on, like that tension between looking towards the future and being okay with what you got now was really hard. Because again, this was two thir- 2013 when we, he joined, I think it was 2017, 2018, when we finally got top three at NCAA championship and we got third, second, third, three championships in a row. 
So it was a multi-year process to get there. It wasn't the quick turnaround that Dion did. But there was that tension there where, you know, sometimes it was like, ah, we need to get rid of these people. We need to get rid of these people um, and bring in better. But it was, this is where the the brilliance was in the staff is Leroy Burrell, again, longtime friend of Carl's, training partner, going back to the competitive days. He was the person who would temper that, that like, Let's do this now. Let's overreact. And I think that's why that's how it ended up working over the long haul because you had this like flash push, like Carl show versus this other voice over here that's saying, yeah, yeah, I get it. But like, we need to, you know, let these kids know we care right now and like we can't leave these kids behind and blah, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, I don't know if, if Deion Sanders has that on his staff or how their coaching relationships, you know, vary in the different roles. But I think having people in those different roles, especially if you have a flashy head coach who's going to draw that attention, um, that's, that's a necessity or else there can be, you know, rumblings underneath the surface. I think that's a really interesting parallel, and uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's also worth noting that in the context of college sports, it's a very different context that the most people lead in. Because college sports, your players are turning over at most every four years, I guess in the case of a red shirt, every five years, but oftentimes much faster, as many players don't stay for their full eligibility. They try to make it as a professional athlete. So there's this other like weird factor, which is you kind of know that like these kids are going to go and you're going to get to recruit and bring in new kids. However, I think the biggest parallel in other leadership roles is when you transition from one company to another, from one team to another, and you ultimately have to decide, are you going to bring in your own people or are you going to keep the people that are there? And oftentimes it's a combination of both. Sometimes it's really clear that you clean house and you bring in your own team. Other times it's really clear that you being there is, you know, you're inheriting an all-star team and it's contingent on you keeping that all-star team and learning how to lead them. But normally it's in the middle. So I do think like there's a lot to learn from Dion about keeping your current people happy and charged up while also realizing that in a turnaround job, you were brought there to turn the thing around and there's a desired future state that you're going to want to get to and it's going to take some time and so this is this is one thing where i can i i feel like i can offer criticism on the dean sanders show a, a little bit um in this regard because you notice if this was professional sports or if this was some i don't know, company or organization i think you're spot on i think the tension that is in college sports that we kind of just sweep under the rug is that yes it's it's Football is essentially semi, it's professional college sports. Yeah. But it's still college, right? And and I think we're moving towards, especially in football, like NIL, paying players a little bit, but we're not there yet. And I think with, with the way Deion Sanders did it, which was essentially say, hey, everybody, like you're probably not going to make it, like let go. And I think he brought in, I don't know, something like 50 to 60 new athletes. Um and let go similar amounts. Part of me as a former college coach just cringes at that. Because, and the reason is, is this, is because if you look at, 
you know, not to get in the weeds, but if you look at transfers for kids like that, what happens? Not all get picked up and get, you know, transferred to another school and get a scholarship and, and keep it going. You know, not all, if you've ever transferred from schools, not all transfers are easy. Often classes don't count. Like you get behind. It'll take you an extra year or extra semester to graduate. And I think in sports, especially where football, where college is often seen as like the hope, right? It's sold as the great hope for high school kids. Um, Often kids who maybe might come from uh, more poverty or not have as many shots and such, like, it kind of sucks that, like, you could dash dozens of kids potentially, like, or throw their their situation into turmoil. And I, I don't think Deion Sanders is necessarily at fault for this because it's the avenue of college sports and the, the system is there. I more blame it on the NCAA of creating a system where there aren't checks and balances to make sure that people kind of don't get screwed or like we realize that there's an education component to it and either we need to accept that or we need to make it full professional in the sense that like, yeah, you pay everyone there and yeah, there's an education component, but like they're being compensated. So if they all of a sudden get let go their sophomore year of college, they're not kind of screwed. I couldn't agree more. I was I was going to um, say more or less exactly what you said, but maybe I said a little bit differently. So if not, it's an important enough point worth reiterating. I don't think the problem is Deion Sanders. He's got a mandate. Otherwise, his ass is going to get fired. So like the problem is a system that's trying to have its cake and eat it too. And the NC2A for a sport like football, they just have to decide. Either this is a professional sport or um, a minor league professional sport, in which case the transfer portal ought to be wide open like it is. And there are free agents and people come and they go and everyone's getting paid. Or it is a collegiate sport, in which case the transfer portal should not be wide open. We should go back to the rules that we used to have where, you know, if you transfer, you have to sit out that season plus, is it is it plus the next one? There, there used to be like a big penalty in terms of transfer. And the reason for the penalty was to prevent people from treating it like a pro sport with free agency or you, 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 um, like I said, you just pay the players. Cause right now it's like this in between mode where there's no commitment to the kids that they're going to have a spot on the team. And there's no like contract saying you're here for four years and you're not going to be let go and you're going to get a good education. So either that contract needs to be there and enforced, especially the part about the good education or you got to start paying everyone. None of this, like, you know, name and likeness up to a certain amount of money, like give these, give the athletes a salary. And I know that's really challenging because it's like, well, where do you draw the line? If the football players get a salary, do the basketball players, what about the women's sports um, that might not be as revenue generating for the school and on and on and on. So I get that it's a clusterfuck, but the current situation, like the kids just get screwed when stuff like this happens. Um, so I don't I don't have an answer to that other than I think you either close you either have a penalty with the transfer portal or you just have to pay everyone because you're right those sixty kids that now are no longer at University of Colorado could be the end of their football dreams could be the end of their education um, 
so on and so forth. Especially if the two years before they were having their grades like inflated so that all they could do is play football instead of have time to study. Like it starts long before that. I mean, I can't tell you at University of Michigan, I knew a couple guys on the football team and like, it's a ruse, man. Like those, the, those kids at the University of Michigan, the athletes, like it has nothing to do with their incoming smarts either. There's simply no time. Like it takes time to be a good student at the University of Michigan and you are a professional athlete and you can't be a professional athlete and have a 3.5 GPA at a really good school at the same time. And to me, that's the problem. Like even the smartest kids, like it, you know, and you tell these success stories of the football player that ended up becoming a, a, a neuroscientist or doctor or something. But there's a reason they're the exception, not the norm. It's not because athletes are dumb. It's because athletes are spending 20 hours of 24 hours a day on athletics, not school. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's true. I mean, I'll tell you from my experience and then, you know, going to a prestigious undergrad as well. Um, it's true. There's there's You can't do everything all at once. And certain sports are more time consuming than others. I was lucky that you know, running, you can only run so many times in the day. Although I'll tell you my, my academic, my grades were the worst when I was running the most because you, 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 you try and run 110 miles a week and then go to school and study and, you know, travel on the weekends to meets and all that stuff. It just, it, it something has to give. You know, and I think that's okay. That's part of it, but there has to be some sort of recognition in that um, as as well. And I don't think we do enough to realize that that's part of part of it. You know? Yeah, I uh, I'm with you a hundred percent. And I think that, like you said, you you can't have your cake and eat it too. And if either these kids are there to be students, or these kids are there. Um, to play sports, but if you're going to try to do both, then you have to have boundaries that are enforced on the sports side of things. Yeah, and you know, I know this is a different conversation, but I'd love, I'd love kind of more, you know, if if there were more programs or colleges set up and acknowledged that athletes have this, like there would be an easy way to integrate at least some programs into like, hey, you want to you want to be a high school football coach or basketball coach or whatever your, your sport is like, there would be so many ways to integrate, you know, academics into athletics to a degree. Um, and so I'm sort of degree program that gives them the credentials to go coach P and high school football in a manner that isn't just like, go take some exercise science classes. Um, that would help solve some of these problems, not all of them, because again, not all athletes want to coach, but I think the more avenues that we would provide that, you know, did that, the better off we are. And then I think there's some that is like, you know, I've had the argument as well that, you know, musicians can major in music. Should we consider like NFL caliber people able to major in sports or football? Maybe. I don't know. It's just some things to chew on. You know, I never heard that last argument. And I think um, it's very interesting because there's a lot that you could teach people to prepare them for a career in the NFL about 
like the emotional social issues you might have with family and friends when suddenly you're a millionaire, about suddenly everyone wants something from you, who to trust with your money, who not to trust, all the identity stuff that we talk about, about how to make sure that you have other parts of your life that give you meaning. Um, it's a fascinating idea because, right, that's what happens in music school. You get like this raw prodigy talent and you help that talent find their lane in music. And you also teach them about the business of music and the craft of music and the history of music. And I don't know, but ideally there's some financial literacy and there's how to pick an agent and all of these things that then hopefully you, and maybe this is naive, maybe music school sucks too, but hopefully you'd end music school, not only with the ability to go be a professional musician, but also with the wraparound skills to do it in a way that is sustainable. It, exactly. Um, and, the and that way, would be really helpful for, for athletes because even, even low draft picks that only stay in the league for two years, most of them are walking away with a couple million dollars. And like, if you invest that money well and save it, it's a, you know, maybe you can't retire, but maybe you can. I mean, it's a really, it's certainly close. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the that's again an interesting aspect of again high revenue sports like football or even basketball to a degree. And I think you expand it if you expanded it out to, you know, things like you know journalism, broadcasting, you know, front office work, whatever in terms of team sports and just giving them wraparound skills to say, Hey, when your career ends here, like you've got social media, you've got like these other skills that can be utilized within your sport that kind of correspond. I, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I mean, I think again, just like the music schools that like, just like Juilliard is only going to take people that have a really high likelihood of competing, I guess in that sense, it's performing at a professional level the good sports programs will like, it's no different than how Michigan currently recruits or Alabama currently recruits. Um, and those kids can major in football. I think where things get murky and this intellectual exercise gets really hard is, well, what do you do with the still probably even at a school like Michigan, the 80 to 95% of kids that are not going to get drafted to play in the NFL? Yeah. But I think, you know, in this weird recognition i think that's kind of the that's kind of the point is if you separate things out almost it like brings the reality of like hey this person probably won't get drafted they're not good enough to use our analogy to get into juilliard they still might want to play in the school band right or whatever have you but we have to give them secondary skills to survive once they don't get go professional. So those kids would still be on the team. They just wouldn't be majoring in football. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's, it, I, it's, no, it, it's there's tough. Once you get there's, into the weeds yeah. of how to apply it, it's very hard, but I really like the, the upper framing in, in acknowledging that what we're currently doing is not working for yes. anyone. Like despite the NCAA commercials that say everything's hunky dory and our student athletes go on to do all these good things. Anyone that's been inside the system knows but that is the exception, not the rule. And it's not the fault of the kids. It's a broken system that treats them as professional athletes, not student athletes. And that needs to change. Yep. And I think that's the key is we're just kicking around ideas on this off the cuff rant from Brad and Steve that goes all, all over the place. But I, I think that's the underlying thing and bringing it up back to the beginning on the Deion Sanders stuff is we have to look at 
a little bit of of kind of like what's the system that has kind of forced his hand this way that probably needs to change and you can't really fault Dion for saying hey the system tells me I need to win really quickly so I need to get rid of all these kids exploit the transfer rule as best we can and maybe even exploit the name image image likeness because this is the only way I can get athletes to you know be quote unquote paid um and what we really need to look at is like is this the system that we want in college sports that does what we think it does and I I would argue right now it doesn't and we need a better system we got five more minutes for another crazy idea separate from college football sure. with Deion Sanders. Let's do it. You've already heard this idea. All right. So I, Brad here, so that everyone that wants to throw the hater comments in can throw the hater comments in. Uh, I think that in America, inequality is really a big problem that is underlying so many of the other dysfunctions in our country. I was utterly shocked when I actually looked at what the top 1% makes and it's just more than I thought it would be. Depending on your geography, it's upwards of $750,000, $850,000 per year in, in annual income. And then I was shocked to see just how many people make over $100 million and on and on and on. So we have historically low tax rates, even compared to like when Reagan was president, on dollars above a million. And Essentially, what do people do that like have a hundred million, two hundred million dollars? Like the richest people, they buy yachts, they buy sports teams. Apparently, they buy social media companies. So they buy these trophies, right? And it's a status thing. And then there's all this resentment because everyone else that's not in that class resents them for having all this money. And then they resent everyone else for resenting them and saying, you don't know how hard I worked. Why aren't you appreciative? I contribute to the economy, so on and so forth. Rather than have these quasi-trophies, I think that we should have real championship rings and trophies for super rich people. And there can be different levels based on what they contribute to the tax pool. So I have no idea. Some economists would have to figure out what the number is. But let's just say it starts at $10 million a year. And if you make ten million, if you make nine hundred ninety-nine million dollars a year, every dollar up to that point is taxed at whatever it's currently taxed at. But any dollar over ten million dollars a year gets taxed at like a ninety-two percent marginal tax rate. So, you know, let's say that you make twenty million. Well, guess what? Of that twenty, of that additional ten million, nine million are going to taxes. But you get a championship ring, and because you're in the twenty million category, you get a gold ring. You get to the 50 million category, you get a platinum ring. You get to the 100 million category, you get a diamond ring. And then the person that contributes the most to the tax pool every year gets their name engraved on the Stanley Cup. So instead of everyone hating Elon Musk and Elon Musk becoming a tool because all he wants is to be loved and buying you know boats and companies like Twitter is whatever, why not just give Elon Musk the Stanley Cup and let his name be engraved on it and I really think it would help because I don't firm I don't believe that over and I'm making up 10 million again, economists, psychologists can name the number, but at a certain point, it's not about the money, it's about the status. So instead of buying the super fancy washer yacht and having everyone hate you, why not get the super fancy ring and have everyone love you for contributing to the tax pool? And that is my plan to help minimize inequality is replace the fake trophies with real trophies acknowledge that 
you know, it's a great thing to to give a lot of that extra money. No one's asking, listen, $10 million. No one's asking you to be taxed at 90% below $10 million, right? This is money above $10 million or name that absurd number. Um, and you get a really cool ring and you get to compete for uh, the Stanley Cup of rich people. <laughs> so... Okay, let's unpack this quickly. You know what it reminds me of is, um, I think it's research by Dr. Keltner on power that essentially says that, like, you know, the old uh, saying that power corrupts is, like, there's research behind power tends to not just corrupt, but it changes our, our incentives, and it does that to everybody, even if you're, like, a good dude going into it. Like, there's research that shows that, like, power shifts us where we have like less empathy and understanding to other people and like shifts our motivation and shifts us to more of like a zero sum mindset and all of these things. And I think what you're getting at here is like inequality matters. And we know that this, this kind of power dynamic that comes with a ton of money, like shifts even the best of people to view the world through a different lens. We need to fill that, void with something to compete at that gives them status without being an a-hole essentially well yeah and convinces them that they don't need a 30 percent tax rate on dollars 10 million to 1 billion and listen i'm not saying that the government you know operates wonderfully with all the tax dollars but it it just seems like it's a great policy for redistribution that still keeps intact what I think at a certain income you're actually after, which is status and respect, but you don't actually get, all you get is resentment. And maybe it helps fix that paradox where it actually gives people status and respect in, in exchange, it redistributes money to people that need it and for services that people could use. And in in the context, this is, I mean, I'd love for listeners to tell us all the ways in which we're wrong. I'm sure we have like economists out there that are cringing. But um, Steve and I were just talking this weekend about, you know, polling numbers and the political polarization and dysfunction and just how much of it, I think, comes down to like inequality and people feeling like they're like, it's so hard for them to make it and they don't belong and they're, they don't have a chance. And I think that the elites in both parties are often a little bit out of touch with that. Um, I think in one party, there's a real grift going on because I think they're pretending to like get them, even though you know the, the president of that party is known for shitting on a gold-plated toilet. So I don't think he knows what it's like to barely make ends meet. But I do think the inequality is not sustainable. And if you look across history, whenever you have crazy inequality, there's always a revolution. So... I think what we need to do is redefine the Stanley Cup of uh, of million billionaires, whatever you want to call it. No contribution. Like we have to. I know I said that, but it's like the yeah. contribution trophy. Who contributed yeah. the most to society? Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, the other way to do it is sports kind of fills this void, but we could make it more blatant. I mean, you know? science does this with the Nobel Prize in some ways, like. My guess is that that matters more to scientists than money. And my guess is if you were to tell someone like an Elon Musk that like, hey, you could earn a Nobel Prize, mm. but it's going to cost you $7 billion, he'd probably be like, yeah, if, like, if I got the respect that came with that, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the key. 
Yeah, no, but that's what I'm saying. Like it, it would require a lot of people also to like truly be grateful for the fact that this person, whether earned or inherited, is essentially giving away 90% of their wealth back to society. And that's something that we should reward. Like I genuinely think it would help people like billionaires more. And you wouldn't have billionaires. You'd have hundred millionaires because their dollars would be taxed at 90% or whatever makes sense. All right. Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup of con- contribution. We're going to lower the Gini coefficient and avoid a revolution because it's not. I mean, again, this is this is so armchair. I'm going to get myself in trouble. But like it's go. not the, the dentist that owns a small practice or like even the orthopedic surgeon down the street that's contributing to this crazy inequality. It is like the amount of people that have just more money than we could even imagine that are not really taxed on that in an escalating way that makes any sense to me or most people. Yeah. I think, I think it's important here to separate out is we're not talking about quote unquote rich people who you might think of. We're talking about like the unimaginable wealth. Well, and I, I say $10 million and cause to me, I mean, shit to me, 1 million in annual income feels pretty unimaginable. I mean, yeah. think about how much money it is to make a million dollars a year. But I know people who are good people who live in Silicon Valley and send their kids to school. And based on the geography and the cost of living, you know, it takes a million dollars a year. And I don't resent them at all. I respect a lot of these people very much. Um, I think at $10 million, though, I think it gets harder to argue. Not $10 million of net worth, $10 million per year. Like, there, yeah. and, and maybe it's 15. I don't know. But there's got to be some number. And when you actually like mess around and put this in, you realize there's a shit ton of people that make that much money. It's crazy. Yeah. There's some number where it's just like, all right, this is absurd. So I saw some data that said that, um, I don't know, maybe it was like when the, the so-called middle class was strongest and there's, you know, all these structural factors, world war two, this, that, the other, but in like the fifties and sixties, the average CEO made like, I don't know what it is, eight, eight to 10 times more than the average worker, and now it's like 450 times more? Well, we've, yeah, what we've done is we've uh, gone towards the heroic individualism, to you know, to use your term, where it's like... Yeah, the, winner takes the, all economy. Winner takes all, the star is what's most important. But I think to weirdly bring this back to sports, what we know is that like star athletes matter but you got to have the team around them. And this is where I think professional sports like, yeah, as Brad said, like the star of the stars are getting paid insanely in the NFL or MLB or what have you. But the guy riding the bench is still getting paid pretty dang good, <laughs> you know, in the grand scheme of things. And I think that analogy is is apt for how we view maybe the, the workplaces that, you can't have your, you know, your star quarterback making a hundred million dollars and your, you know, backup center making twenty thousand dollars a year because it just wouldn't work as a team. Right. And especially if that twenty thousand dollars a year puts you near or below the poverty line. Like yep. like, you know, that's kind of where I come from is like uh, Everyone deserves like a Taurus with some air conditioning and decent miles to the gallon. 
And if everyone could have a Taurus, I think the world would be a lot better. And it's not to say people can't have Lexus or BMWs or Ferraris, but like got to make sure everyone has a Taurus. And I think the way to do it is the Stanley Cup of Contribution. And then instead of having 19, you know, Ferraris, you have 18, but everyone gets a Taurus. So this, this, I'm going to butcher this study, but it reminds me of a study I read a couple weeks ago that was on, um, they had individuals, they stuck them in like a, you know, whatever, a Honda Accord, right? And then stuck them in uh, like a fancy BMW or whatever, whatever expensive car is. And they ran this experiment again. I'm going to butcher it. They ran this experiment where they had someone in the crosswalk of like a street about to step into the street, right? And when people are driving the like Honda Accord, almost 99% of the time or something ridiculous, they stopped. When they stuck the same people in a BMW, it was like only like 30% of the time they stopped. And the only difference was literally what car they were driving. So that's like the demonstration that we're working against a little bit is it's not saying you can't drive your BMW, but like that status, that power, et cetera, does change um, your you know mentality and behavior a little bit. And the Stanley Cup of, uh, of collaboration is just something to say, hey, we're acknowledging the psychology um, but we're going to direct it in a positive route instead of a negative route. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, there's research that shows that um, inequality itself makes people unhappy, even if you're at the top rung of that inequality. So like this level of inequality is not good for anyone, including the rich people, because it's not fun to have everyone resent you. So anyways, I don't know how we got here, um, but here we are. Uh, so just a fun conceptual thing to, to play around with. Um, I pitched this as an op-ed to the New York times. They said it's an interesting idea, but they'd have to pass, but I'm going to keep trying to frame it better and better to get this out there. There we go. Stanley cup. Here we come. All right, everybody. Well, there you go. We started at college football and ended with the Stanley Cup of collaboration. No, contribution. Uh, We're not contribution. asking. People Sorry. don't even have to collaborate. Just make that money and give it back to the tax pool above an uh, ungodly heinous amount. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, all people who can tell us why Brad's idea is horrible, feel free to hit us up, email us, you know, message Brad on Twitter. Don't Don't tell me, just tell Brad, just pile it on. Um, but thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this rant. Let us know if you did or let us know constructively if we could do a better job. So thank you for listening. Till next time, everybody. Take care. <laughs>